Uh, good morning. Let's see. Can you guys hear me okay? Hopefully. How's that? Is that better? Let's uh, take our Bibles uh, this morning and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. Do y'all have any faint memories that we were studying 2 Thessalonians? <laughs> I looked at the uh, SLBC website. It said our last lesson in this was on September the 24th. So what is it? November the 5th. Thank you to all the teachers that filled in. Pastor Jim, etc. Jim Myers. But we were actually in the middle of a verse-by-verse teaching through 2 Thessalonians. And we came to this uh, verse here. It says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, it is the day of the Lord. Not the day of Christ, as we'll see, but the day of the Lord. For it will not come unless the apostasy, which is, I don't think, a very good translation. I'll show you why. It's a translation of that Greek noun, apostosia, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And I was looking at this. I started praying to myself, Lord, I need some help interpreting it and he said well of course you do that's why you you need to open in prayer and you forgot to do that so let's pray father we're just grateful for today and grateful for another opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth we're grateful for the fact lord that in an ever-changing world um, that you are the same yesterday today and forever we thank, thankful, Lord, for the fact that you've given us a completed canon of Scripture uh, whereby we can uh, understand the complete uh, revelation of God. I pray you'll make us good stewards of that as we look at it, both in the Sunday school hour and in the main service that follows. I do ask for your special hand of blessing as we commemorate the Lord's table today and enjoy the fellowship lunch and enjoy koinonia or fellowship with each other. So in preparation for these ministries and also all the other ministries that are happening in this building today, um, we're just going to take a few moments of silence to do personal business with you if necessary, not to restore uh, position, but to restore broken fellowship if need be. We are thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says to God's little children, chapter 2, verse 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that your provision for us is so comprehensive that not only does it reconcile us unto God, 
as we will be celebrating today at the Lord's table, but it even makes room for the uh, dealing of broken fellowship. So we thank you for that. And we do ask for the Holy Spirit's illuminating ministry to have his way today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. So verse by verse study through 2 Thessalonians 2.3, 2, uh, 2 Thessalonians in its totality. Having arrived at this verse here, let no one in any way deceive you for it, day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasia. I'm going to try to convince you today that when you see that word apostasy in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, I would just cross that out in your English translation and write in the word the departure. For it will not come unless the departure translation of apostasia comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction so you remember um, in our study uh, hopefully a little bit you remember this that Paul had planted the churches the church there in Thessalonica he was forced out of that area uh, because of persecution from the unbelieving Jews. He was forced um, down uh, south into Corinth. I was just there in Corinth. And it's from that location that he, he gets a letter or a correspondence from the Thessalonian church. And that correspondence is described in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This describes the problem. So if you can understand the problem related to the correspondence that he had received from the Thessalonian church, you can understand the prerequisites that he lays out for the day of the Lord. Problem 1 and 2 of chapter 2, prerequisites, verses 3 through 12. Why lay out these prerequisites of the day of the Lord? There's five of them. And what he's basically saying is you can't say you're in the seven-year tribulation period until you see these five things happening. Why did Paul give them this outline? Because of the problem given in verse 2. Verse 2 says that you not be quickly shaken... And the Greek word for shaken is used in the book of Acts, chapter 16, for an earthquake. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure, a theological earthquake in other words, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they had received this baby Christian Thessalonian assembly, a alleged correspondence coming from Paul, which was false. It was a forgery, telling them that they were actually in the seven-year tribulation period. And that bothered them a great deal because Paul, in the first letter, told them they would not go into the tribulation period. 
And the fact that they were shaken sort of proves that Paul had, not, had taught them that they were not going into the tribulation period. Because if Paul had taught them that you're going into the seven-year tribulation period, why would they be upset? They would be thumbs up. This is what Paul said would happen. So the fact that they're bothered by this is a really good defense that Paul had taught them that they would be removed from the earth before the tribulation period started. And uh, then this letter came into the church of Thessalonica saying, allegedly from Paul, saying, well, wrong, we're actually in the seven-year tribulation, which means that everything Paul said in the first letter should be thrown out because he made an error. See that? And so once you understand this problem, you start to understand why Paul goes into the, all this detail about prophecy and the seven-year tribulation period. He had taught them in the first letter that that's where they were in the church age and the rapture would occur before the tribulation period started. And this forgery had come into their midst, allegedly coming from Paul, saying, no, um, you're actually here in the tribulation period itself. And it shook them up. So it's not like Paul can just say, go home and read your Bible, figure it out yourself, because there is no New Testament yet. There's just a few letters. There's no systematic theology yet. There's no Bible schools or colleges. Uh, there's no systematic theologians. The only way they're going to get an answer to this question is from the apostle that planted their church in Thessalonica. So to convince them that what you have received is a forgery and that what I said to you in the first letter is still true, he gives them five characteristics of the day of the Lord. And he says you can't say you're in the day of the Lord until you see these five things transpiring, none of which is happening now. And the very first one that he mentions is the most controversial, and that's why we've been drilling down on it. I actually think this is our fifth lesson on chapter 2, verse 3a. So you guys are, you have to understand, you're like in a really weird church. <laughs> I mean, most pastors do like a five-week series, period. We do like a five-week sub-series within a series on half of a verse. <laughs> but the reason we're going into it is because this is very, very confusing. It's very, very controversial. It's very, very debated. What, what in the world does he mean by the apostasia or the apostasy? I think it's better translated the departure. And there's basically two principal views on it. The first view is it's talking about a departure from the Word, <clears throat> doctrinal departure. The second view is no, he is actually using the departure as a synonym for the rapture where it's really dealing with the departure from the world. And in that second view, what he's saying is the departure from the world, i.e. the rapture, hasn't happened yet. And since the rapture hasn't happened yet, you're not in the day of the Lord. And in this series, within the series, 
Um, I tried to talk you through early on why he's not dealing with a departure from the Word. Went through some of the problems with that. So what I think he's talking about here is this is a departure not from the Word, but from the world. In other words, this, if I'm right on this, is a synonym for the rapture. And you say, well, who cares, and why get into all this detail, and why, do, why are people so exercised over this? It relates to that um, word first, which is the translation of the Greek word proton, first. And what he's saying there is the departure comes first. First relative to what? First relative to everything else in the, in the paragraph. So if the interpretation that this is really a synonym for the rapture is correct, then the top view concerning the timing of the rapture is the correct view. Because people have been arguing about this for probably 200 years or more. Mid-tribulationalists are telling us we're going to go halfway through the tribulation. Post-tribulationalists are telling us we're going through the whole tribulation. Uh, Pre-wrath rapturists, which is very deceptively misnamed view, says we're going to go through three quarters of the tribulation, and at the top of the screen is what we think is the right view. Pre-tribulationalists believe we will not see any of this day of the Lord. It's not, we're not saying that life is easy prior to that, but you won't, you won't, you're not a participant as a member of the church in everything that's described in verses 3 through 12. So if that interpretation, the departure comes first, is correct, and if this really is a rapture passage, then there's not really much to argue about anymore concerning the timing of the rapture. You can defend the pre-trib rapture even if you don't believe what I'm saying here. I have a lot of friends that are pre-tribulationalists that will not accept the interpretation that we're giving here. But if what we're saying is true, then it's sort of icing on the cake. There's really not much more to discuss. The departure, i.e. the removal of the church from the world will happen first before the tribulation period starts. So what he is saying to his audience who is shaken uh, because they received this forged letter indicating that they're in the tribulation period, Paul is saying, relax, you're still here. That's his point. The departure hasn't happened yet. And as I mentioned uh, before, I do have a little booklet on this called The Falling Away. I think we might have some available in the back, don't we? Uh, you can get that on your way out at the table. It's just an easy way to read through it in one sitting to find out what is really going on here if you're interested in this. And I think you're probably interested or you wouldn't be here this morning. Amen? Um, so what I try to present in this little booklet are basically ten reasons why I think the <coughs> physical departure understanding is correct. And we've made it through eight of these. So it's not like one argument seals the deal. It's looking at the evidence cumulatively. 
So the first reason is there's always been doctrinal departures. I mean, churches depart doctrinally, schools depart doctrinally all the time. How could that be evidence of anything since it happens all the time? certainly isn't evidence that you're in the tribulation period. The second reason is that 2 Thessalonians was a very early letter where Paul does not get into the subject of the last day's doctrinal departure of the church. He does that later in his writings, but this is early in his writings. The third reason is there's a definite article in front of the noun apostosia, and it doesn't just say departure or apostasy, it says the departure. So he's referring to a specific thing that he had already told them about. Number four and five, both the noun and the verb can refer to a physical departure. I mean, there's evidence for it in uh, Greek literature. There's tons of evidence for the verb in the New Testament, as I tried to show you. The noun is only used twice, once here and once in Acts 21.21, so you have to look elsewhere to see if the noun would work. And um, the noun, as I tried to show you from classical Greek and other sources, can be used for a physical departure. In fact, I was just in this area, Corinth, Greece, Thessalonica, that they call over there Thessaloniki, which is always bothersome when you've mispronounced a word your whole life and taught it publicly. But I was, we had a Greek-speaking um, tour guide she was, she was very good. And on the bus, via the microphone, I was talking about the word repentance and how repentance in Greek means change of mind. And at that point, she goes, can I have the microphone, please? And i like, oh, no, what is she going to do? Correct me in front of everybody? And she said, what? Um, she called me father. <laughs> what? because they have a Roman Catholic kind of background. I had, to, I had to correct that. I'm not a father. Jesus said, don't call anyone father, but your heavenly father. But she said, uh, father is correct. Uh, the Greek word metanoeo means change of mind. At which time I went, phew, thought I got that right. So then later on, um, this wasn't public because she was in the seat right next to myself and my wife, we asked her about this word apostasia. And um, we said, can this ever mean some kind of physical departure, the noun? And she kind of thought about it for a second, and then she said, yeah, we actually uh, use that noun frequently to talk about things we've left behind. You know, I've left my phone behind or something like that. At which point I went, phew, second time because she's confirming you know, what I'm trying to say. Because what everybody's trying to argue is this noun only means doctrinal. What I'm saying is yes, it can mean doctrinal in some contexts, but it can also mean physical or spatial. So both the noun and the verb can be used that way. So when you run into that, how do you resolve the issue? What are the three rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. And so that's points six and seven. 
that both the extended context and the immediate context favors inserting a physical departure understanding because that's the subject matter Paul is dealing with here. And then people come back and they say, well, why doesn't Paul just use the word gathering like he does in verse 1? Why doesn't he just use the word harpazo, which he does in the first letter to describe the rapture? And the answer to that, number eight, is Paul is reviewing material here. Because if you look at verse five, he says, do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? So whenever you review material that you've covered, you don't relay the whole foundation. You use synonyms. So they already understood the physical departure. Paul just uses another synonym, different words, same meaning, which is common when you review material. So all of that is review, but this takes us to my ninth reason why I think the physical departure view is correct. And it has to do with your earliest um, English translations. The earliest English Bible translators. Now we have to go back pre-King James to see this. So those out there that are King James only, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your toes. I love the King James Version, but it has a wrong word here. When you go back pre-King James, the early English Bible translators all recognized that the noun apostasia as communicating a physical departure. So if you were living in a time period before the King James Bible came into existence, you would be very open to this physical interpretation because you would see it in your own English translation. But we have been influenced by the King James on this issue and all of the other subsequent um, English translations that people follow, whether it's the New King James, the NIV, the RSV, the JB, the NASB, which, which I use, are all following the King James translation and they're following a doctrinal understanding because that's what the King James did reversing translation history. Prior to the King James, all the English translations interpret it with the word departure, meaning something physical. They didn't insert the meaning of doctrinal departure. So all of this started with Jerome in the fourth century. Uh, Jerome created something called the Latin Vulgate, which was an English, uh, excuse me, not an English, a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. Why did Jerome want to translate the Greek New Testament in the fourth century into Latin? Because Latin by the fourth century was the language of the common man. That's why he called it the Vulgate. Um, you'll recognize in the word Vulgate, the word vulgar, we, we typically use the word vulgar as profanity, but vulgar, what it really means is common speech, earthy speech. 
That's why he called it the Vulgate, because his desire was people in the 4th century speaking Latin to be able to understand the New Testament in their own language. And when Jerome did that translation, he inserted the following Latin word, um, decision, if I'm pronouncing that right, meaning departure. Jerome thought this meant departure. And what has happened over the course of time, once the Bible started to get translated into English, every single English translation used the word departure, departing first. 1384, that's how the Wycliffe Bible translated this. Uh, 15, they spelled it a little differently, departing. I've got the old English spelling up there for the first three. Uh, the Tyndale Bible, 1526, translated this as departing first. The Coverdale Bible, 1535, translated this as departing first. Then you have the, the Crammer Bible, 1539, translated this departing first. Uh, 1576, the Breaches Bible, Translated this, departing first. Then you have the Biza Bible, 1583. Translated this, departing first. And then look at this, the Geneva Bible. Uh, when Paul Scharf led our men's group, I think a couple times back, and by the way, I think he's going to be here this Saturday at our men's group again. Um, so you might want to come out for that um, at... Uh, 8 a.m., right? But you get a free breakfast, so. He talked a lot when he was with us before about the Geneva Bible. And it's very interesting that the Geneva Bible is like the, the Reformation Bible. You know, all of the Reformed theologians love that Bible. And even the Geneva Bible itself, 1608, translates this as departing first. Now, what people do is they go into the notes of the Geneva Study Bible and they try to show from the notes that these guys didn't believe in a rapture. Um, they weren't pre-tribulationalists. And I, I agree, they weren't. But they were translating a word based on how it appeared in the Greek text and sort of um, doing it without the influence of their theology. So none of these guys, Geneva Bible, were interested in a pre-tribulational rapture. But it is very interesting that even in the Geneva Bible itself, they put a an English translation in there that is very consistent with pre-tribulational rapturism. Whether they knew what they were doing or not, I don't know. They probably didn't. But they just said this is the word that is most faithful to the context. So you start with English translations in 1384 and you go all the way to 1608 and everybody is translating this departure, departure, de not, not just departure, the departure. And then all of a sudden you get to 1576 and the Reims Bible. Suddenly departs, pardon the expression, <laughs> from that rich translation history, and they put in a spiritual understanding. 
they put in the word revolt, meaning a sort of a doctrinal rebellion. So all the others prior to the Reims Bible translated this with a word that's consistent with the physical departure view, but all of a sudden you get to 1576 and the Reims Bible puts the word revolt in there. Now, why in the world would the Reims Bible do that? The answer to that is the Reims Bible is a Roman Catholic English translation. And they were so upset with the Protestant reformers in 1576 that they wanted this word to apply to the Protestant reformers. So they put in this word revolt. And when they did that, they allowed their personal biases and their personal theology to influence how they were translating words. The prior um, English translations did not do that. They had their biases, but they just translated words according to what they felt they meant. The Reims Bible departs from that because the Reims Bible is Catholic and it's interested in applying the word rebellion or revolt to the Protestant reformers. And I want to show you that the Reims Bible, uh, I should be a little bit more professional about it, but it's an absolute piece of junk. It's, it's a joke what it does elsewhere. It's so Catholic that it will take the word um, repent. And what does repent mean? Change of mind. That's what it means. And the Reims Bible is so Catholic, it will take the word repent, change of mind, and they will instead insert as an English translation, penance. Because after all, repent and penance sound alike, right? And so that's why so many people are confused about this word repentance, because they think it means penance, because they've been influenced by Roman Catholic translations. Repentance and penance are two different things, even though they sound alike. Repentance, repentance, biblically, is the idea that you hear the gospel and you trust in the gospel, and as you're trusting in the gospel, your mind just changed. You're no longer trusting in your good works, you're trusting exclusively in the good work of Jesus. So repentance, biblically speaking, and uh, believe are two sides of the same coin. And if you look at our position statements at Sugarland Bible Church, you'll see that reflected in one of the position statements dealing with repentance. And so that was something that we actually, um, before I was here, there was sort of a a lordship salvation kind of resurgence amongst some members of our elder board. Not anybody on the current elder board, just people I don't even know. And they took the Sugarland Bible Church position statement, which has it correct, and they started to move in this direction of rewriting that position statement and trying to make, like, make it sound like repentance is like penance. In other words, repentance is, it's like a freight train that everybody drives into the word repentance to front, front load their works into the gospel. 
So they think it means, uh, you know, feeling sorry, being contrite, uh, being emotional when you get saved. You, get, you better shed some tears when you get saved or you're not a true Christian. And they're moving in this direction that repentance sounds like penance. And in the process, they're front-loading the gospel, which is a gospel of grace. God only requires one thing for the lost sinner, which is to believe, to trust. And when a person trusts, their mind automatically changed. So we fortunately were able to get rid of that position statement and roll it back to uh, what the church was actually founded on um, in the uh, early 1980s, uh, which is a, we think, more of a, a proper understanding of repentance. Uh, Earl Doyle, who's sitting right here, was very helpful in helping us get back to the original position statement. So all of that to say, what we believe is for a person to come to Christ, they don't have to shed crocodile tears. Now you can if you want to, you know, cry up a storm. You don't have to crawl through um, a floor of broken glass to come to Jesus. Um, you don't have to weep and wail and scream. You don't even have to come forward in an altar call. All you have to do is believe. And when you believe, your mind changed. You repented. And people that reject that grace mindset want to use the word repentance in a way in which it's not used biblically. They want to use it in a way that's outside the Greek meaning. And they want to use it as sort of a tool to front load all their personal works into it. And so people that reject grace, salvation, are always trying to play games with this word repentance. That's what the Reims Bible does. Now, I'm not talking here about apostosia. This is how the Reims Bible translates apodosia as a revolt. I'm just trying to tell you that the Reims Bible takes tremendous liberties with what the Greek is saying because they have a theological agenda. So here's what Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says. This is a normal translation. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, change your mind, in other words, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at what the Reims Bible does with that verse. And in those days cometh John the Baptist preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, do penance. That's not what it says. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when they took penance and superimposed it over the Greek word repentance, they were teaching Roman Catholic works-oriented soteriology. And I'm trying to show you why the Reims Bible that now everybody is following relative to this word revolt or rebellion is a source that is tainted. Here's another example of the Reims Bible at work. Here's what Acts 2.38 says normally. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
for, it's probably better translated, because of the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, watch, watch what the Reims Bible does with this word repentance. Peter said to them, do penance. In other words, you better show up at Roman Catholic Mass next Sunday, or you're not a Christian. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can you trust the Reims Bible? No, you cannot. It's obvious that these translators have a Roman Catholic agenda. And if you can't trust it here, why in the world is everybody uh, trusting it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3a? Here's another example. Here's what 2 Peter 3, verse 9 is supposed to say. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I mean, what, what does God want? He wants everybody to change their minds about Jesus and be saved. Look at what the Reims Bible does with this. The Lord delayeth not his promise, as some imagine, but dealeth patiently for your sake, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should return to penance. And most people, they, it just flies right under the radar because, you know, penance sounds like repentance. Um, those, that's a world of difference to what God is actually requiring people to do. He's requiring them to do something as so simple as change their mind. The Reims Bible doesn't care what the actual Greek says. They have a Roman Catholic agenda. They want to teach salvation by works, and so they have absolutely no problem uh, inserting into their English translations Roman Catholic theology, which is academically dishonest, what they're doing. And so it's the Reims Bible, which is the very first to depart from this rich translation history and for the very first time ignore a physical departure sort of understanding and put into it the word revolt when they were translating the apostasia. And the reason that the Reims Bible did that is because in 1576, they did not like the ground that Luther, Calvin, Swingley, the Protestant reformers were making. And so they wanted this word apostasia to apply to their doctrinal departures from Roman Catholicism. And so they just departed from, pardon the expression, from departing first to revolt or rebellion. They gave it a spiritual understanding for the first time because they wanted it to apply to the Protestant reformers. It's no big shock that the Reims Bible would do this when you look at other similar things like this that it's done. But here's the problem. Now everybody's following what the Reims Bible says. And so here comes good old-fashioned King James, King Jimmy. How does the King James uh, translate this? 
they translate it as falling away. So what the King James translators did in 1611 is they said, hey, Reims Bible, Roman Catholics, we can play the same game you're playing. You translated apostasy as applying to us Protestants. Well, we're going to do the same thing back to you. And we're going to make you Catholics the apostates. So that's why the King James Version is going to translate this falling away. They wanted it to apply to the Catholics as dishonestly as the Reims Bible wanted it to apply to the Protestants. So what happened as as you start working your way through translation history is the translators got involved in theological polemics. They started to apply Bible verses to their opponents. And that is not how you do translation. You try to leave your biases out of it. That's what everybody else was doing. Even the Geneva Study Bible. You leave your biases out of it and you try to translate words based on what the word can mean in this context. By the time you get to the Reims Bible and you get to the King James Bible, they're not doing that anymore. They're giving different meanings to the word and they want the word to apply to their theological opponents. Do I like the King James translation? It's very good. But it is not inspired by God. It's a work of man. And any work of man is going to have some errors in it. So this is one of my problems with a mindset, King James only. I mean, if they just said King James mostly, I guess I could sign on to that. I mean, King James translation is really good. But when you say King James only, you're trying to make it sound as if the King James English translation is inspired by God. It's without error. No, it's not without error. Here's an obvious mistake in it. That verse should not read revolt. It should not read falling away. It should read departure first. That's the way it should read. So let me show you where I'm getting this um, explanation from. This is from Thomas Ice on the Pre-Trib website, www.pre-trib.org, and he is quoting a master's thesis done at Dallas Seminary in the late 1990s by Martin uh, Butala, if I'm pronouncing that right. So notice what he says here, because I want you to see that I'm not up here just making things up. Thomas Ice, the executive director of the pre-trip study group, says, quote, most scholars say that no one knows the reason for the translation shift. However, a plausible theory has been put forth by Martin Butala in his master's thesis produced at Dallas Theological Seminary in 1998. It appears that the Catholic translation into English from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, known as the Reims Bible, was the first to break the translation trend. Apostasia at that time was revised from the departure, which is what it should say, to the Protestant revolt, explains Butala. 
Revolution is the terminology still in use today when Catholicism teaches the history of the Protestant Reformation. In other words, Roman Catholics still look at Protestants today as rebels, doctrinal rebels, because they have kind of a Rome sweet home mentality, right? We all need to dump our biblical theology and go back to sit under the Pope. I don't know who anybody in their right mind would want to sit under this current Pope, but let's leave that aside here. Under this guise, apostasia would refer to a departure of Protestants from the Catholic Church. The Catholic translators appear eager to engage in polemics against the Reformation by even allowing it to impact Bible translation. The Reims Bible and the King James Version, if we're correct on this, on this verse departed from the work of being a translator and they got into the work of being a theologian and a polemicist. Now here becomes the problem. All of the translations that we use today, the NKJV, the NIV, some of you may be NIV positive, NIV, the RSV, the ASV, the JB, the NASB, which I use, who is everybody following? They're following King James. In other words, virtually every uh, English translation that is popular today is following the King James. That's why your average Christian has never been exposed to the viewpoint that I'm expressing here, that this is not speaking of a doctrinal departure. What this is speaking of is a physical departure. And most people look at that and say it's crazy. That doesn't fit the NKJV, it doesn't fit the KJV, it doesn't fit the NIV, it doesn't fit the RSV, it doesn't fit the ASV, it doesn't fit the JB, it doesn't fit the NASB. Sounds like alphabet soup. And I'm saying that all of these English translations are following a corrupted source. They're following a King James translation, which was a reaction against the Reims Bible, which is academically dishonest from its inception. If you were sitting here today and you happen to have the Wycliffe translation, anybody have that? No. Anybody have the Tyndale Bible? No. Coverdale Bible? No. Kramer Bible? No. Breaches Bible? No. Beza Bible? No. Geneva Bible? No. You guys don't bring Bibles like that to church. But if you had a Bible like that, pre-King James, you would be able to look into your English translation and see the departure comes first, and you would say, oh yeah, what pastor is saying makes perfect sense. But because of the impact of King James reacting against Reims on modern-day English translations, most people have never heard this view that I'm expressing here, that this is actually a physical departure. They've never heard of it. They think you're crazy when you talk about it because it's so far afield from what our English translations are saying. I'm saying that our English translations, modern English translations, 
not everywhere, but on this verse, have been damaged. Because they're following King James, which got involved in theological polemics against Reims. That's what I'm saying. So what do you do with your English translations? You just throw them out? No, they're, they're very good. But you have to understand that when the English translations came out, they weren't inspired by God. They're works of men. And as a work of man, it, it could have a potential error in it. It's like listening to a sermon, right? You could say, wow, pastor is really preaching well. But don't confuse that with inerrancy. Because a sermon is a work of man which can have a mistake in it. In fact, I actually made a mistake last week. Of course, my wife was the very first to point this out within 15 seconds of me ending the sermon. <laughs> That's the advantage of being married to the right woman, right? She, you know, I, I basically made the point in the sermon that the uh, rights of the firstborn went from Benjamin to, um, or Benjamin was disqualified as the firstborn. Well, that's obviously a mistake because Benjamin is not the firstborn. Reuben is the firstborn. In fact, in chapter 34, which is what I was trying to teach last week, Benjamin hadn't been born yet. So I mistook Benjamin for Reuben. So what do you do with that? You say, well, pastor's doing a good job, his heart's into it, but he's a, he's a human being just like anybody else, and he can make errors. That, that's how you look at these English translations. They're very good. For the most part, they're done with the right motives, but don't, don't act like an English translation is the same thing as divine inspiration. It's not. The only thing that was divinely inspired with 100% accuracy were the original writings which we don't have anymore. What we have are copies. And sometimes in those copies, in less than 1% of the cases, you can have disagreements amongst the copyists. So the work of text criticism is trying to get back to what the originals really said, which we don't have anymore. So a copy can have a mistake in it. A, not a big one. I don't think it affects any major doctrine. An English translation can have a mistake in it, just like uh, a sermon can. And that's what I'm suggesting is happening here with the King James Version. Love the King James, use the King James, but don't move into a King James only mentality where you think that the King James is inspired by God. That is just not true. If you want to be King James mostly, go for it. If you want to be King James only, I think we have a problem. So I think that's what happened with this apostasia. And the early English Bible translations favor a physical departure view. This takes me to number 10 on my list. The physical departure view is held by credible scholars. I started to make a list of people that believe that 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 is talking about a physical departure or a synonym for the rapture. 
started to make a list of people. Because what I was being told by countless people, particularly online, is that I was teaching heresy. I was a heretic for teaching this. I was doing strained exegesis. I was departing from the dispensational tradition. And I thought to myself, given all of the people that agree with me on this, or maybe they don't agree with me, maybe I agree with them, maybe better said, if you're going to throw the charge heresy at somebody, you can't just take down me and Thomas Ice and others. You've got to take down all of these other people as well. It's, it's a very dangerous thing to disagree with someone on a minor, I think this is kind of a minor point, like this, and throw in the word heretic. Because when you throw in the word heretic, you're charging someone with teaching blatant false doctrine. It's like you're denying the virgin birth. You're denying the Trinity. You're denying inerrancy. And what people are doing online is they're not just disagreeing with someone on a point. Brother so-and-so takes it this way, but I disagree and here's why. They're, they're actually throwing the word deceiver, heretic, uh, tear amongst the wheat, you know, wolf amongst the sheep. And if you throw that in my direction, you've got to take out all these other people as well. So here's a list. Now, it's true that the physical departure view is not the majority view. I get it. I'll try to explain to you why it's not the majority view. But it is a minority view and a credible view to be considered without the charge of heresy. Here's all of the people that teach it. These are mostly modern-day people. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, a long-time... Um, professor, I think, at Moody, Moody Bible College. Uh, e. Schuyler English, who wrote a book called Rethinking the Rapture, uh, late 1950s. Now, my professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, holds to this view. In fact, J. Dwight Pentecost is the first one I ever heard about it from. Because like everybody else, I was just following the spiritual departure view. And when Dwight Pentecost, who, by the way, was not just a Bible exposition teacher, but he was also a professor of Greek and New Testament in the early days of Dallas Seminary, when he started to explain this, it's like my ears just went up. I'd never heard this perspective. So, so this mindset that this is Andy's view and Andy is pushing this on everybody um, is, is not true. I'm actually standing on a well-traveled path of many reputables much greater than myself far before me that have said this is talking about a physical departure. H. Wayne House is a proponent of this view. Now, the ones that I have asterisks next to, I have uh, quotations that I'll be sharing with you from each of these people. Stanley Ellison holds to the view. J.S. Maybe holds to the view. Alan McRae holds to the view. Gordon Lewis holds to the view. Henry Morris, the founder of the Young Earth Creationist Movement, ICR. 
He has a Bible. The title of it is the Defender's Bible, something, something like that. And read what he, in fact, I'll share with you what he says in the notes. He holds to a physical departure understanding. John R. Rice holds to this view. Um, Dave Olander, who is a professor of Greek at Tyndale Theological Seminary, holds to the view. J. Carl Laney holds to the view. Looking at the next column, Paul Lee Tan, who wrote a tremendous book entitled The Interpretation of Bible Prophecy, which is a classic. I would put it right next to J. Dwight Pentecost's Things to Come. He holds to this view. Um, in fact, I went to school with his daughter. And I was working really hard on my PhD. And I noticed that I was actually finishing ahead of his daughter because we entered the same time. And I thought, man, I must be pretty smart. I'm even beating Paul Lee Tan's daughter, only to figure out that she was working on a whole nother PhD at the same time. <laughs> so that was kind of humbling. So yeah, she finished a year later, but she had two doctorates instead of one. I was sweating out trying to get one. Um, Christine Tan, a wonderful Christian leader. Tim LaHaye. Uh, Thomas Ice, who I quoted a little earlier. Don Stewart of Calvary Chapel fame. Here in Houston, people will appreciate this. Um, my understanding is Robert Thiem was a believer in the physical departure view. Gordon Olson, who came up with, uh, prior to his death, a English translation from the Greek, I'll show you, he held to the view. None other than J. Vernon McGee. I mean, you can't get more bread and butter than him, right? Now, friends, let's open our Bibles. <laughs> I'll show you that he had a physical departure understanding. Uh, Jimmy DeYoung, who passed away recently, holds to it. Pastor J.D. Farag holds to it. In fact, J.D. Frog, and you watch him on his prophecy updates, um, started to come out with this uh, physical departure view, and he was basically ganged up on by a bunch of people. People that you know. People, if I mentioned their names, you would say, oh yeah, I, I've, I've heard their show, and whatnot. And he started to back away from the view just because everybody was so upset at him for teaching it. Well, he actually called me on the phone. And I was able to talk him through it and send him my little booklet, and that solidified him into what he originally thought about it. In fact, I think Pastor Gabe visited his church, and he's got a book out there, and it's like the only book in the lobby. <laughs> it's my little book on the apostasia. Uh, David Hawking is a believer in the view. Now this next one, Jimmy Swaggart. Oh wow, pastor's getting desperate. He's got to quote Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> um, the, the reason I'm quoting Jimmy Swaggart is not because I agree with everything Jimmy Swaggart's ever said or did, but Jimmy Swaggart, whether you know it or not, is a big voice in AOG, Assemblies of God. 
And so what I'm trying to show you is that this physical departure view is trans, can I use the word trans? <laughs> Trans-denominational. I mean, this goes across the denominational spectrum where you have a major voice in AOG, Assemblies of God, also holding to the view. So the next time um, we're together, I'll share with you some of these quotes from these guys. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the words you've given us. We're grateful for faithful translators, but we, we really don't look to man for our understanding. Uh, we look to you. And you, we believe, have spoken on this. Help us to come to a right understanding of it so we can represent you as lights in a fallen world in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Happy intermission.